Um, I am really excited, uh, actually, to stand in for Dr. Loud today. Uh, Dr. Bermudez is a friend of Dr. Loud's, and unfortunately, our timing completely didn't work, and uh, Keith is out of town right now. Um, but I'm really excited for our guest speaker today. Um, a couple of housekeeping things. Cravens apologizes for not having the quiche and frittata. It's coming, so you can grab some on the way out. Um, and then for our code today for CME and CNE, it's KP, as in Pat, V as in Victor, H. KPVH for our code today. Um, we're going to do a double introduction today because I'm also really proud of introducing one of our colleagues, Dr. Marsha Heron, um, who's going to, has worked with Dr. Bermudez for a long time, a long time um, in the eating disordered world, uh, disordered eating world. Um, Dr. Heron has a doctorate in nutrition education, master's in public health, and is the founder of Dartmouth College's nationally renowned eating disorder treatment program for college students. She's a clinical professor with us here, and our residents actually get to know her pretty well because they rotate with her during their adolescent month. She lectures worldwide on nutrition counseling and the treatment of eating disorders and provides programmatic and clinical supervision for eating disorder providers in the U.S., United Arab Emirates, Britain, Mexico, Russia, and Venezuela. Dr. Heron has treated eating disorder patients for over 30 years. She is the author of Nutrition Counseling and the Treatment of Eating Disorders and the Parent's Guide to Eating Disorders. I will say as a clinician who takes care of a lot of patients with eating disorders, these two resources have been invaluable in my practice. Her rule of threes food plan is widely used in the treatment of eating disorders. Dr. Heron received her doctorate in nutrition education from Columbia. Um, at the University of California, Berkeley, she received a master's degree and completed her dietetic internship. She was honored as a fellow in the Academy of Eating Disorders in 2013, and she met Dr. Bermudez at her first international conference of eating disorders. I, she didn't mention a year, though. Right. That's, <laughs> right. The debate. That's the debate. Or was it the international... National Eating Disorder Association meeting. I think it was about 30 years ago plus, maybe. I think you were at Vanderbilt Medical University Medical School still. Um, but enough reminiscings. Um, it's really my pleasure to introduce Dr. Ovidio Bermudez. He's been practicing Kathy's last name. It's a really <laughs> difficult one if you come from Cuba, right? <laughs> um, I first met Ovidio at these early conferences, and he really stood out as an experienced clinician, a respected one that really respected dietitians' on uh, role on the eating disorder treatment team. And in those years, that felt very good because the field was a little top-heavy with um, Psychiatrists and psychologists, um, I would say. <laughs> and we've been friends ever since. Ovidio currently has academic appointments as a clinical professor of psychiatry and pediatrics at the University of Colorado School of Medicine and the University of Oklahoma College of Medicine. He is board certified in pediatrics and adolescent medicine. And over the course of his year, of his career, he's been promoted a number of times to the level of fellow. <laughs> I worked so hard on my becoming a fellow at the Academy of Eating Disorders, it was kind of pathetic. But I did get it, and I'm very proud of that. For um, Ovidio, he is a fellow in the American Academy of Pediatrics, the Society for Less, uh, Adolescent Health and Medicine. Yes, the Academy of Eating Disorders, the International Association of Eating Disorder Professionals. And currently, he is Senior Medical Director of Child and Adolescent Services, Chief Education Officer, Clinical Education Officer, and Executive Ambassador, and I think that's why he, he gets to be here, for the Recovery Center in Denver. And it's 13, I have it right, 13 affiliates all over the country. None of them very close to here, by the way. Um, but my daughter's moving to Sacramento, and you have one there, and I'm very excited about this. This morning, Dr. Remudes will be um, talking about emerging eating pathologies. In other words, what's new is 
of how eating disorders are looking to us. And you're going to learn some new acronyms. There's some great ones. A-R-F-I-D, if you don't know that one, or E-D-D-M-T-1, and atypical anorexia. But you'll tell us. Good morning. Thank you, Dr. Shopkin, for that, for introducing Marsha and for having me here. And Marsha, thank you for that introduction, although I must say it does make me sound very old. So, you know, You're older than me, though. <laughs> I'll do my best here. Uh, thanks for being here this morning and, and letting me share with you some thoughts, really, about um, this topic, which is very near and dear to my heart. You know, after three decades uh, caring for patients with eat and families with eating disorders, um, I think that watching this field evolve um, has been sort of an interesting journey uh, and one that I'm really grateful for. So um, let's talk a little bit about emerging eating pathologies. I have no conflict of interest to disclose. I love history. And if we think historically, um, you know, it was a British physician, uh, practicing uh, clinician, Richard Morton, who in 1689 uh, published the first medical description of uh, what was later to become anorexia nervosa. He called it thesis nervosa. And the problem at that time in Europe is that there were a lot of people dying of thinness. Um, and he essentially identified three groups of people that were dying of thinness, a group that coughed, 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 thinner, 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 coughed, coughed, blood in their sputum, and they died, tuberculosis. And then a group that started to lose sensation in their lower extremities, eventually lost weight, weight, and eventually shuffled their gait, um, and they had chronic syphilis. Um, and of course, he said, those those two groups are very common, uh, and the common denominator is these people feel awful and they're asking for help. They, they wanted to be identified. They wanted to be seen as, as ill. And he said, but there's this smaller third group. Uh, they seem to be nervous um, about their situation. They, they, and, and, and what is different about them is that they claim not to feel badly. Actually, he said, um, they, they live with this um, what he called an intellectual perversion. And they said, I feel well, therefore I must be well. Um, that was quite different for somebody who is quite ill um, and so on. It wasn't until a little later that the actual term anorexia nervosa was coined by both a Frenchman and a British um, physicians um, just a little while later. <clears throat> and then history sort of rode forward and we had a stable symptom complex. Anorexia nervosa has looked the same for about 600 years. Um, as a matter of fact, Hilda Brook, who was a um, psychiatrist at Baylor College of Medicine um, of, of German descent, published a book that was uh, really important. It was called The Golden Cage, The Enigma of Anorexia Nervosa. Um, and the reason that it was really important it was because it was the first time that a sort of a psychological uh, um, view of, of this disorder, not endocrinological, not behavioral, but psychological, uh, came to bear. However, the book was so successful, it was published by Harvard University Press that a year later, Dr. Brook, uh, whom I met, um, wrote, a, wrote a letter to them and in thanking Harvard University Press for their support. And in that letter, she included this line, this tragic illness befalls the daughters of intellectual and sophisticated families. Now, you and I both know that that is simply not true today, right? This is a much broader illness than that. But that was part of what sort of got into the bandwagon of, you know, the family dynamics and, and all the family blaming that we did for quite some time. And in 1979 was the first time that a second eating disorder diagnosis was, was published uh, by Gerald Russell, Dr. Russell, whom I also had the pleasure of meeting and who passed away last year, unfortunately. Um, published this paper on bulimia nervosa as an ominous variant of anorexia. So stable symptom complex, anorexia nervosa, much later with a single variant, bulimia. Um, in the early studies, a predominance of Caucasian females of European descent um, thought at some point to be purely behavioral, then purely psychosocial. We blame the media, they cause it, et cetera. Um, you know, the, 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 the fashion models, and, and then we got into the bandwagon of caused by parents and the whole dynamic. Actually, the very early descriptions, it was said that friends and families were the worst attendants. Well, we've come full circle because now friends and families are the most important attendants. Um, and of course, 
not until relatively very recently recognized as a, as a complex psychopathology, a serious mental illness, and a brain disorder, as Tom Insel uh, said when he was head of the National Institute of Mental Health, uh, just about 15. So in the last two decades, we've seen an awful lot of change, emergence of new presentations that support here to talk about. But along with that, we've seen demographic drift, um, broader gender and age representation, um, and, and even um, the, the erosion of psycho, uh, uh, psychosocial factors that once were protective. So biculturalism, and I can speak to that, right, um, is one of those uh, issues that, that has made that shift, if you will. So just a little while ago, a decade and a half, two decades ago, uh, being bicultural was actually protective of eating disorders. So somehow, grandma's message, right, the, of clean your plate and it's okay to have some curves, right, uh, and the world's message of you can't be too thin or too rich, right, that, that this, the, the, the balance tilted towards the power of grandma influence, so to speak, right? And just in the last decade, decade and a half, that has clearly tilted the other way. And being bicultural actually becomes confusing and becomes a risk factor for the development of eating pathology. And that's true for African Americans, that's true for Hispanic Americans, that's true for Asian Americans, and those are the three groups that have been more closely looked at. Uh, but I don't, I don't see it as any different for anybody else. So important to think about that, and today it affects all races and all ethnicities um, in most countries, um, if you will. And then gender dysphoria sort of adds another layer of complexity. We'll talk a little bit about that. So just in 2013, right, as 2013 rolled in, in January of 2013, we had clinical criteria for three eating disorders, anorexia, bulimia, and EDNOS. Clearly, there were problems with this criteria. So 60-plus percent of clinical presentations were not otherwise specified atypical, and clearly there's something that speaks to something wrong with that, that criteria. And of course, as DSM-5 rolls around, we have now diagnostic criteria for eight eating disorders. The complexity of this has um, evolved a little bit, and that's part of what we're here to speak about. So one of those important diagnoses, the, the one on top, OSFED, um, other specified eating or eating disorder, um, because you know that, that's the, the basket now where we tend to sort of put uh, eating pathologies that don't really fit into a diagnostic category one way or the other. So what is it that we're seeing that's new? And um, I want to share with you my thoughts about a little bit of this. So there is a plethora of um, terms in the media, right? Um, and, and the interesting thing about these terms is that um, contrary to what happens sometimes, right, that the media sort of fabricates a, a name for something and then popularizes it, the truth of the matter is that all of these syndromes, if you will, have clinical relevance. I've sat across from <coughs> all of them um, and, and, and said to myself, gee, there, there is something to, to this. Um, beginning with the caloric restriction for longevity, some of, some of you may not be old enough to remember this, but there was a whole fad. Uh, sometime 20, 20, 25 years ago, where some science came out around you restricted certain animals, they live longer, calorically restricted certain animals. Um, and it turned out that at a time in which anorexia was the predominant diagnosis and 90 to 95% female, there was a group of middle-aged, highly educated, well, financially well-to-do men who sort of read this literature and said, gee, I should live longer. And what they did was restricted their own calories. What happened? Some of them, they called the monster, right? The latent genetic vulnerability, their own latent genetic vulnerability, and developed anorexia. Also. Um, so fascinating to see this. And it turns out that it's true. If you're a worm or a mouse and you restrict your calories, you live longer. But if you're a human, you got to have a little meat on the bones. And since the metropolitan um, life expectancy tables right, uh, have changed, uh, since that time, and that's part of why. Let me mention one more thing about this, the last one, right? Um, muscle dysphoria has been around for a while. It's been sort of one of, the, one of the foundations of how men sort of walk towards eating disorders. Now we've moved beyond that. Now it's health dysphoria. It's the sense that 
if I chisel my life into a certain pattern of behaviors and practices, then I'll be healthier. And it turns out that that's simply not true. I'm doing a talk a little uh, later this month on um, the human biome, uh, microbiome, and its effect on, on mood, right? Mood and human behavior. And of course, it turns out that if, if we alter our patterns of, be patterns of behavior significantly, we alter the microbiome. And if we alter the microbiome, we alter the way our brains work. And it's so intertwined in such fascinating ways that it's interesting to, to see it sort of distilled down to, gee, if I just eat and exercise and sleep and walk and talk a certain way, then I'll be healthy. The whole notion of medical comorbidity uh, and its association with eating pathologies is a relatively new one also. Um, this is a new conversation. And yet, all of these are syndromes um, in, in associated with an eating disorder um, that that I have faced. I, I want to just touch base on two of them. The association, because the association with hypothyroidism um, and, and, you know, trying to be thinner is an easy, right? You overtake thyroid hormone, then that's yeah. um, hyperthyroid. The outcome is predictable. But with hyperthyroidism, it's so interesting. The first time I saw this, I saw a 14-year-old on tapazole um, who learned to cut back her dosing to remain relatively hyperthyroid. 14. I wasn't that smart when I was 14. <laughs> that's, that's pretty sophisticated, if you will. And then, um, and of course, with, with cerebral palsy and Turner syndrome, it's not about misusing their illness, but it's, it's really about the fundamental premise of coming into the world, struggling with your own body image to begin with, right off the bat. Um, any questions about any of those? Because in cystic fibrosis, for example, think of this for a minute, right? I've seen two, two modalities of misusing CF in the service of thinness. One is to overuse vests. You know, the thing about eating disorders is that is when you're obsessive, right? Obsession works 24-7. And so they, they go to the extreme, right? So we have patients, for example, we track their movement in a unit. They can walk 15 miles a day. Most humans are incapable of walking 15 miles a day, not on a sustained basis. Imagine doing that in a space from here to that wall. Right? There's something different about that. So with CF, I've seen them overuse um, vests. And if you use a vest for you know, 8, 9, 10 hours a day, literally, then, of course, that, that changes what happens with your whole caloric expenditure thing. And, and also um, underdosing digestive enzymes just to allow enough malnutrition uh, to serve the material. So let's talk about these three things. Um, the dual diagnosis of eating disorder and diabetes mellitus type 1, there is an association with type 2, um, but it's tighter with type 1. Um, and I think the right term for that is, is EDDM type 1 as opposed to diabulimia. But I'll tell you why that diabulimia came around. ARFID, which is a very important diagnosis. I think that's something that clinically um, you're seeing like we're seeing. And, of course, atypical anorexia. Fair? Everybody with me? You guys are very quiet. <laughs> must be a Dharma thing. That must be one of the traditions or something. <laughs> very quiet, very quiet. All right, let's talk about EDDM type 1. So I was fortunate to be invited to participate in a consensus conference back in 09, so gee, a, a decade ago. Um, but it was very interesting because the researchers who had contributed uh, to the field, mostly Oxford University and, and the group from Toronto, um, uh, were present. And, and this was what this group chiseled out as a definition. The intentional omission of prescribed insulin by either strategically decreasing, delaying, or completely omitting the use of insulin for the purpose of inducing hyperglycemia, you get the rest of the idea. Right? Um, and so the important thing about this is that diabulimia came up as a term because the initial presentations in type 1 diabetes were people who had type 1 diabetes those insulin normally for their average, you know, daily food intake. But if they binged, then they held the insulin. Right? So they were compensating for a binge. Hence, the whole notion of this being a, a purging type of compensatory behavior and how it fit into the term uh, diabulimia, diabetes. So what this definition says is that it goes way beyond that, way beyond that. Um, so if, if you're not a binger, 
right? And you decide to suspend the use of long-acting insulin and only focus on short-acting insulin to maintain sort of semi-reasonable blood sugars. Um, that's very different than I binge and I held my insulin. Um, and hence the notion. The pathophysiology of this is complex. And this is the most uh, widely accepted sort of understanding of this right now, right? And uh, it, it's a complex slide, but I'll, I'll walk you through it here. The, the issue is, is that in the solid arrows, right, these are the well-established pathways, which says that, look, if, you, if you're diagnosed with diabetes and you start insulin, you gain weight. And if you gain weight, you struggle with your body image. And if you struggle with your body image, you try to practice dietary restraint, you develop negative affect. Type 1 diabetics have two to three-fold the incidence of de depression uh, compared to age match, uh, general population peers, and that tends to lead you to disordered eating. We've known that for a while. Uh, that's not rocket science. What is a little bit more interesting is the, in that in the broken arrows, it says, look, dietary uh, uh, a dietary regimen can lead to dietary restraint in and of itself, right? And of course, that can lead to neg negative affect, and eventually it all sort of trickles down to disordered eating behaviors. And as importantly, that hunger and satiety disruption, because diabetes is more than about insulin, uh, actually also leads to disordered eating behaviors because if fundamentally you, you, you lose the ability um, or, or you're handicapped in the ability to recognize satiety and hunger, well, there goes, there goes uh, sort of the intuitive aspect uh, of eating and the like. So what this uh, modified dual pathway says is sure, four things. Carbohydrate counting tends to drive and pose food preoccupation, right? These are young kids who are taught very well um, about their diabetes and learning to watch what they eat, how they dose. And if you do that, and they're a little bit of a sticky brain, the more obsessive compulsive type, that sticks. Um, weight fluctuations are associated with variable use of insulin and of course subsequent body dissatisfaction. So if they try to lose weight, they can, but then if they manage the diabetes, well, they regain the weight. And in that yo-yo sort of up and down comes a lot of, I'm unhappy with myself. Uh, blood glucose fluctuations associated with a mismatch in insulin dose, excessive caloric intake secondary to hypoglycemia, and therefore result in weight gain. So they're always playing the game of matching, and, and weight status tends to um, fluctuate with that. And of course, the response to hypoglycemia in and of itself imposes overeating. Um, so it, they're, they're learning to eat from uh, external cues. I've got a, I'm low, so I really need to eat, as opposed to I'm hungry, and I really need to eat. That's one of the associations with the royal road to binge down the line. The other important aspect of this is that in addition to the disruption in uh, insulin production, we know that there is a disruption in amylin production and a disruption in ghrelin production, so that the hunger and satiety cues are, are biologically challenged, not just behaviorally or, or psychologically challenged in folks with type 1 diabetes. Hence, the whole notion of overeating, undereating, weight fluctuations as a, as a real setup uh, for this group of patients. Now, how many of you have heard that anorexia nervosa has the highest mortality rate of all eating, of, of all psychopathologies, really. And of course, that's challenged now by the whole notion of opiates. Um, right? that, that really has been challenged. As a matter of fact, you could challenge that um, with the whole notion of uh, people with IV cocaine abuse. They've had a higher mortality rate than anorexia. But that's a tiny group. And, and, and I think that people have said, look, addictions, of course, they're a psychopathology but they're an addiction. They're not a psychopathology like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and so on and so forth. So hence the, the notion that anorexia has had the highest mortality rate of all psychopathology with, with those caveats. Well, the truth of the matter is that this association, eating disorder and type 1 diabetes, clearly has a higher mortality rate than anorexia. Um, and in, in this particular study by Nielsen um, in, in 02, uh, they looked at uh, person death, uh, death per thousand person years, diabetes alone 2.2 deaths, uh, anorexia nervosa 7.3 uh, deaths, which, which actually translates into a crude mortality rate of 6.5% per decade of disease. So when, if somebody was to ask you, what is the mortality rate of anorexia? It turns out that we say around 
in the second decade of suffering, after the second decade of suffering from the disease, which is different, right? So in the first decade, the mortality rate is lower. Um, and that's where that number really comes from. And of course, 34.6 deaths per thousand person year for the concurrent um, association of anorexia nervosa and type 1 diabetes. That's five times the, the mortality rate of anorexia nervosa. So um, I think these are patients that really need to be taken seriously. Um, one of the conclusions of this group is, look, if you diagnose a patient has diabetes with an eating disorder, consider hospitalizing them quickly. The reason for that, the whole diabetes education program uh, in the United States, maybe across the world, has been one of the best um, resulted public health efforts. They do a fantastic job educating diabetics. So in psychopathology, psychoeducation alone is unlikely to change behavior. If not, we would see a bulimic in the emergency room and say, listen, don't throw up anymore. Go home and don't do that anymore because that's not good for you. And that would be the treatment. Um, and that tends not to happen. So it's important given the medical morbidity associated and the mortality, it's important. Our approach, um, I think you can uh, take a closer look at this la uh, later, but our approach is really based on a great level of expertise. So medical, psychiatric, nutritional, and psychological uh, expertise. Um, and we have a, a eating recovery center, a pretty sophisticated level system to take care of these patients. So they all come in um, into, into sort of this, this protocol um, of treatment uh, by um, no longer managing their own diabetes, right? And gradually re, re, uh, resuming uh, the responsibility for the care of the diabetes on a gradual basis. How sophisticated do they get? Well, you've seen an insulin pump insertion site. This happens to be the wife of the head of an endocrinology department at a major medical center. Of course, I cannot tell you where it is. So her husband would look at this and say, that's pretty peachy. Uh, she knew well what she was doing. Um, and, and diabetics get very sophisticated when they, they want to sort of mismanage their diabetes. And they call these dead spots. And this woman would just keep using uh, you know, her insulin pump insertion site into the same area, uh, knowing well that at the very least sort of uh, lower the bioavailability of her insulin, if not did away with it eventually altogether. And we're already seeing nuances on this. So um, in, instead of the deliberate induction of hyperglycemia to lose weight, we've already running into the deliberate induction of hypoglycemia to lose weight. And what you talk about Russian roulette, this is one of those games. Hypoglycemia seeks thinness, usually older. The patients that I've encountered have been older. A couple of them have been PhD psychologists themselves, um, who essentially said, you know, if if for the average diabetic, you know, aiming for uh, A1C of you know five to six, you know, is good enough. Average blood glucose of 110 or so is good enough. For me, it's not good enough, and I'm going to shoot to live at 50. And, of course, that's fantastic. They drop their A1Cs to, you know, the low, the low fours and the like, but then many times they're at 20. Um, and most of those patients have not done well. And then there is a syndrome that I've seen mostly in teenage girls, um, type 1 diabetic teenage girls, where their shame of the binge is so that they will intentionally overdose on insulin in order to justify to themselves that they have no choice but to binge. So if, you know, your meal calls for 15 units of short-acting insulin and you inject 45, you better rush to the pantry. Um, and that somehow, in their mind, uh, lowers the shame. And of course, if you're uh, engaging in, in non-suicidal uh, self-injury, um, it's one thing, right? I can take your exacto knife. Your family can find your exacto knife and put it away or throw it away. But what do I do with your diabetes, diabetes hair paraffin? Um, and that's what they're cutting and stabbing. So another nuance in the sense of this. These are, I think, good resources around this. So the proceeds of that conference I mentioned were published in Diabetes Spectrum in the summer of 09, completely relevant today. 
Um, and there is a chapter, this is the third edition of Mailers and Anderson's uh, Guide to the Medical Care and Complications of Eating Disorders. And there's a chapter in this edition on EDDM type one that I think uh, is, is pretty state of the art. Okay, enough about that. Talk about our fit. I think if I was a young clinician today, I would make my mark on this syndrome. This, this, this is where eating pathology is headed. Uh, the, actually, the prevalence and incidence, at least in the United States, of both diabetes, of both anorexia and bulimia are relatively stable. This is what's spiking up in incredible ways, and it will for the last foreseeable future, um, if you will. So here are the diagnostic criteria. We're not going to go over them. You know them, and if not, you can read them. But I'll, I'll mention one thing. So there's four criterion, and in criterion A, number four um, justifies uh, essentially that you can be normal-weighted and physiologically healthy and have an ARFID diagnosis. Translation of that. 50-year-old guy calls. I field a lot of calls for our center um, of that nature and says, can you guys help me? with my RFID, okay? Get on the phone with him, tell me who you are. I'm a practicing attorney, I have eight attorneys working for me, right? I run triathlons, I'm, I'm normal weighted, I'm a very healthy individual, and yet my, my, my eating habits are getting in my way. And my daughter just turned eight, started to ask, why does daddy eat weird? My wife said, if you don't shape up, you shape out. And now I'm interested, I haven't been interested before, right? Um, and so I can put away my practice. I've told all my partners to his credit, right? Not, not shying away from sharing his reality. I can, I've told all my partners, I can put my practice on hold for a month and I can give you four weeks. Can you get me to eat four more vegetables and four more fruits? <laughs> if I can do that, I can go home and my problem is over. Sure, come on down. Um, we did exposures and the like. He ended up staying six weeks, but he went home eating seven new vegetables and seven new fruits. And from that perspective, treatment was a success. That is, those are very different treatment goals than an RFID kid who hasn't grown in height for the last three years. Different agenda, different agenda. Um, and then of course, these are the rest of the, of the criterion. And what I do want to mention to you, um, it's not accountable to a medical condition, and these criteria are mutually exclusive of anorexia and bleeding. I think it's really important as clinicians that if we make a mental health diagnosis, we label it correctly. And we, and we talk to the patient in specific terms around that. I cannot tell you how many people I've sat across with that have come referred to us from, from a you know, reputable institution, and either what they heard or what they were told is I have anorexia and bulimia. You can't have anorexia and bulimia. The, the criteria are mutually exclusive. And now I'm hearing I have anorexia and ARFID. And the criteria are mutually exclusive. So really important in our education of patients and families to be precise from that perspective. What it, what it is, is a serious eating disorder whose medical complications are commensurate with the degree of underweight and malnutrition. And in that case, not similar, but exact to that of anorexia nervosa which means that we don't understand the mortality rate. But the mortality rate, when we do understand it, has to be serious because the, the complications are exactly the same. And people with anorexia, suicide aside, suicide is the number one cause of death in anorexia. The, the, the rest of the complications have to do with uh, physiological demise. Um, so important to think about that. What it is not, just picky eating in kids, this is different. Uh, so for example, um, there, there are people who have already looked at what are the patterns of behavior that separate simple picky eating, not that picky eating is simple, but for the argument for this conversation, we'll call it simple picky eating from more complex psychopathology. Um, and so, for example, picky eaters tend to eat a food, come to dislike it, leave it for a while, and a few months later come back to it. Our fit kids, if they discount a food that they no longer tolerate, they will never come back to it. A very different sort of pattern of behavior. It is not a lesser eating disorder. For a long time, EDNOS, you know, either we framed it or families heard it as a relief, right? 
not anorexia. It's, I'm better off. The truth of the matter is you were not better off. Um, and um, uh, the group out of Minnesota, uh, Dr. Crow, was the uh, principal author of that uh, review of their own data, uh, proved that the mortality rate for EDNOS was equal, statistically equal to that of anorexia and that of bulimia, if you followed them long enough. Um, so important not to think, now, let this become sort of a relief with a lesser diagnosis. It is not a behavior disorder. This is a mental illness, just like anorexia and bulimia are mental illnesses. So important to not be thinking about it that way. And, and an opportunity that we have is not to circle back to blaming families for this behavior. And, and sure, you know, every, every child who's survived ARFID has had somebody support that behavior pattern, right? If not, they wouldn't make it. Um, but the truth of the matter is that that's very different from cause and effect. Um, so those are important opportunities. The prevalence is unknown, still more common in children and young teens, but uh, clearly uh, present in adolescents and adulthood throughout the lifespan. So for me, the youngest child has been six years old, that I think really met criteria for the diagnosis. The oldest has been a 62-year-old man. Um, present throughout the lifespan, both genders, and of course, uh, the association with psychiatric comorbidity is tight, but it's different than that on anorexia and bulimia. In anorexia and bulimia, there is a lot of depression, right? And here we have more of the anxious, obsessive, compulsive features, much less depression. Still a new diagnosis. Many clinicians can say, look, this is not my wheelhouse. Um, and, and in syndromes in which the medical complaints are usually quite prevalent, they're, they're significant source of preoccupation for these patients and these families. I'm afraid of choking, what's wrong? I'm afraid of hurting, what's wrong with my tummy? What that tends to translate to is vast medical workups. We should be thoughtful about that. Um, the clinical presentations vary with the developmental complex, uh, context. So picky eating at two, the same picky eating may be very different at six and very different at 16. Um, and you know, as pediatricians, I think we are well aware of that. But that doesn't mean that the rest of the healthcare world is, is as aware of that. And I think it, it's up to us to sort of um, beat that drum. We have now sort of modified this. So avoidant restrictive implies a bifurcation in the diagnosis, in the conceptualization of these diagnoses to begin with. We think it's more complicated than that. We're now looking at five, uh, I call them types, because I think they're different and we manage them differently. You could argue that grammatically they should be subtypes. I'll accept that. <laughs> I'll accept that. Um, and let me walk you through these for a minute. So the avoidant type, um, we call them the phobic avoidance group. Uh, and these are people whose food refusal is related to ad ad adverse experiences or fear-based experiences, like if I eat, I'm going to choke, I'm going to feel nauseous, I may vomit, uh, I will have pain upon swallowing or stomach pain. Um, I will have swallowing difficulties, and, and very, very new is this whole notion of fear of anaphylaxis. Um, you know, if you have a true peanut allergy, you better be concerned about that. Pay attention. Now, if you take that to, to psychopathology, then it becomes impossible to function. If, if you know, you have sort of peanut in the air, uh, so to speak. Uh, so it becomes a real challenge for them. The aversive type, we call them the sensory sensitivity. Uh, type. Um, the food refusal or limited diet is related to sensory features, um, uh, either sensory aversions uh, that may be circumscribed only to food but involve other senses as well. Uh, for some of them, it's not about aversion per se, but overstimulation. And if you're not a super taster, it's hard to think that, you know, putting sugar in your mouth may feel like, uh, you know, having your, somebody's fingernail sort of you know, scratching the chalkboard. Many of you don't even know what a chalkboard is, but some of us do. Some of us do. Some of us do. And then, of course, in, in this group, it's important to consider unrecognized sensory processing disorders that could have been present from day one. Um, the restrictive group uh, tend to be the, the low appetite drive group. A lot of gamers fall into this picture. Stream pickiness, distractible and forgetful. If you're really into something, like screen stimulation, and you can do that for eight, 10 hours a day, what would be the drive to get up? You know, you would have to have a lot of hunger cues. 
you sort of leave that and, and go take care of that <laughs> business, if you will. And very confusing because many of them not only clearly speak to the fact that, yes, they recognize they're underweight, they would like to be more healthy or stronger, but they also claim they wish they ate more. And sort of the question that logically follows is, well, why not? And the truth of the matter is that, again, this is a psychopathology. We're running into a mixed type, combinations of these. Somebody who was restrictive since day one, and then they saw grandma choke uh, at a Thanksgiving dinner, and somebody did the Hamlet, and that, that sticky brain sort of stuck with that experience, right? And now they are both restrictive and avoidant. And, and the treatment is different, which is uh, what's interesting about this. And then most important, this is, this is where I think um, it gets really interesting, is this notion, I, I made this term up, uh, I don't know that the literature really reflects this, uh, but this RFID plus sort of sense of, of, you know, these are kids that live in today's world. And they're likely to struggle with their own body image and their drive for thinness and their desire for thinness, you know, just like, just like the rest of, of people growing up and, and, and living in, in a context like this. And of course, so these are the kids, these are the RFID kids that begin to shift their language, right? Towards a preoccupation with, with food content, weight, fatness, etc. Now, if they develop a drive for thinness and body image distortion, though, that means they crossed over into the criteria for anorexia and they no longer have RFID. Now we have to treat them as anorexia and not have both. Um, but there is a gray zone there. There is a time in which they are still RFID but begin to talk about this. A good example is a shift in preference from less calorically dense. If you're a picky eater, what do you survive on? What are the three top foods that kids with restrictive RFID eat? Chicken nuggets. Chicken nuggets is number one. <laughs> yes, number one, right? What's number two? Mac and cheese. Mac and cheese. And number three is pizza. Um, okay? So those are not exactly anorexia foods. So if you've got somebody who's lived their whole life on those three items and then begin to say, I want mac, but no cheese, just boiled mac. Something is adrift. Something has changed in, in their world, uh, in a sense. But we have to be very in tune to that because therapeutically, it's a problem. The critical ingredients in the, in the management expertise in all areas, got to work with families, team alignment. These are kids who can really um, triangulate situations, if you will. It, it's, it's easy to have a lot of feelings, right? It's easy to have a lot of counter-transference-related issues around uh, these, these kids and their families. And at the end of the day, it's taking somebody who feels disempowered um, or disinterested. Disempowered is, I can't. I can't eat because I'm going to choke. Disinterested is, ah, I'd rather play games than, than eat, um, into somebody who feels empowered and motivated to make a change towards their relationship with food. The management, this is a very narrow summary, uh, but it's important not to forget the core principles. If you're underweight, malnourished, you need nutritional rehabilitation, weight normalization, and, and nutritional caloric support for catch-up growth, if that is one of the challenges. Uh, and of course, no man's land is, or no person's land is, when some of these kids have not grown for quite a while and you actually have to make them relatively under overweight in order for the support the, the high catch-up growth. That's, that's wow. Wow, because that's not in a graph anywhere. Um, what we do for restrictive RFID is structured eating and a combination of uh, family-based therapy-informed treatment with emotional-focused family therapy. That's the premise of, of our treatment for that. For the avoiding kids, we do formal exposure and response prevention in the context of um, EFFT, for the mixed type, it becomes complicated. Now you have to say, what am I going to deal with first, right? Because the treatments, the, the, the prior treatment and ERP are very different, right? Structured eating and ERP are very different approaches. And when these kids have mixed features, where do we start? But we tend to tease it out. And for RFIT Plus, I would say proceed with caution. And the reason for that is, is that the very language, right, um, that can be helpful and supportive with a kid with restrictive or avoidant or aversive RFID can be very triggering for somebody whose mind is moving in the direction of anorexia, right? The notion of just eat for anorexia is a bad notion. We shouldn't go there. <laughs> that's, that's not the way to go um, with that group. 
the outcomes, we really don't know. But it's very likely that there will be variable with the different type of RFID, with the age of onset and the age of presentation, what the evolution of this pathology has been, and many of them have struggled for a, for a very long time. Okay. We're getting to the home stretch here, so you're hanging with me? Good. Atypical anorexia nervosa. I don't even think the term should exist. There's nothing atypical about it, okay? But it's a good term today because I think it speaks to clinicians, right? And says, look, we got to be open-eyed and aware that this is a, an emerging uh, pathology. And, and, you know, we need to be ready to see it and diagnose it. So all of the criteria for anorexia nervosa are met, except that despite the significant weight loss, the individual's weight is within or above the normal range. But they have anorexia nervosa. They have that profound drive for thinness, the body image distortion, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so it's important to view them as uh, people who truly have anorexia. Um, Sawyer uh, sort of put forth this comparison between anorexia nervosa and atypical anorexia, and here were their conclusions. Uh, medical complications were similar, if not identical. No significant difference were found in things like pulse rate, how often they ran, uh, ran into bradycardia or presented with bradycardia, marked orthostatic changes, hypothermia, and how often they require medical stabilization to stabilize. Um, no differences in, in the measures of binge eating, purging, psychiatric comorbidity. Again, a lot of depression involved in that, along with the anxiety and the obsessive compulsive features. Use of psychotropic medications, self-harm associated with the pathology, suicidal ideation. Suicide is very important in eating disorders. Um, and the severity of depressive symptomatology with obsessiveness and compulsiveness. However, atypical anorexia were more likely to remain, uh, you know, meeting BMI criteria to be called overweight or even obese, um, and, and were less likely to experience amenorrhea. I was seeming they were female. I was seeming uh, the only difference. So um, here is a, another article, uh, sort of looking at predictors of complication, and this is very interesting because what it really boils down to, and this is a little bit of the data, but let me give you the, the, the punchline is, is that when, when you look at the different associations, the most important thing that these people looked at was that in teens with restrictive eating disorders, total weight loss and recent weight loss rather than weight at admission are better predictors of many physiological complications. It's the metabolic challenge that really sort of road tackles these physiologies. It's not the weight at which they present. Um, so greater total weight loss was the strongest predictor of physiologic complications and worse eating disorder cognitions, which means that what we know, right, as the brain gets challenged with malnutrition, brain function, including cognitive function, gets significantly challenged. So they get more eating disorders as they lose more weight, if you will. And, of course, they, what they propose is that future diagnostic criteria for anorexia is to take these parameters into account, how much weight you've lost and how rapidly you've lost it, not necessarily what you weigh at the time that we see. So it seems like not too long ago, it really would have been unheard of for anybody to come here and speak of somebody with anorexia nervosa who is overweight or obese, right? That almost seems like quite contradictory, um, if you will, but so clearly, clearly things are changing. And to me, the important consideration, why is that? I have, this is my own cooking, so I can't tell you that, you know, gee, let's go read about this. Um, but I'll tell you that I think there are a couple of questions on the table. Are we tapping into new layers of genetic vulnerability? Meaning that pervasive stress related to increased life complexity is one of those. My friend Craig Johnson has said the real trigger for eating pathology, especially in kids and teenagers, is life complexity. It's not the media, it's not the food label, it's not the, the models, it's really life complexity. And life is probably more complex now than it's ever been before. And is our overwhelming stimuli challenging our neurobiology? The premise of the pathogenesis of all psychopathology is genetic environment interaction. Right? Latent genetic vulnerability, <laughs> punished by environmental factors that link with that genetic vulnerability and hence allow, promote 
bring forth the expression of a particular phenotype. That's the work of Ashraf Caspi, uh, an Italian that looked at uh, depression in, in young women in their mid-20s and life experiences like divorce, rape, losing a job, etc. This boils down to this. The understanding of how we inherit eating disorders and psychopathology is probably best visualized in a scattergram like this. If you draw two lines, one vertical and one horizontal, you have four quadrants. And this says, look, for whatever it is, in this case, is incidence of eating disorders. You could put obesity here. You could put depression. If you're a genetically resistant population living in a pro protective environment, the expression of the phenotype is very low. If you're genetically prone, but you still live in a protective environment, if nothing pushes your, your latent vulnerability, um, then the expression of the phenotype continues. However, the promotion, the promoting environment effect says that even if you're a resistant population, you're going to pick up the most vulnerable, or genetically vulnerable in that population, are going to have to see an increase in the expression of the phenotype. And of course, if you're genetically prone, and you move to a promoting environment, then you see an explosion in the expression, which is what we've seen with so many. Obesity is a fantastic example. That's the premise. So based on that premise, what I submit is the notion that for 600 years, we saw anorexia nervosa, and then much later, post-1979, uh, bulimia nervosa because the, the level of environmental influence was, we'll call it level A. And that was pretty stable for quite some time. What we're seeing today is that the influence of the environment has changed, and we see binge eating disorder, RFID, EDDM type 1, atypical anorexia nervosa, things that 10 years ago were unheard of. They were, they were just simply not around like they are today. And so my question is, what happens as the environment changes again, and what will we see? For me, if I was a young clinician, that would be one of my points of interest, right? one of my areas of interest. My goodness, what are we going to see? So the other point here is, is that we've perceived stress as external stimuli that lead to a negative perception, a challenge, or a difficulty, right? Getting a, getting a speeding ticket is stressful. Just got one last Friday. <laughs> Believe me. Um, the question is, do we need to shift that and begin to look at stress as the impact of exposures that we have not evolved a tolerance to and only tolerate with downstream negative consequences, especially to our brains? How many of you have been? I love it. I love it. Every time I go, I'm, I don't stay up very late, but there I stay up late. I can wander those streets forever. Just, just people looking, right? Hearing, smelling. But what I submit to you is that if you spend a few hours in that place, you've heard more sound, you've seen more light, you've smelled more unusual smells <laughs> than maybe our great-grandparents in their entire life. How could that not matter in a sense, right? So light pollution has become a problem with sleep. Noise pollution has become a problem with concentration, and brain functioning, and even academic performance. So let's, we need to sort of think about Gee, what is the impact of this? What does this mean for all humans? So perhaps the toxicity of our environment may not just be mediated by negative experiences, what we tend to view as stress, um, but also by exposure to positive stimuli that we have essentially created to improve our world, to improve our lives. Right? Um, it may just be a matter of, of too much of that. Are we exceeding our brain's capacity to tolerate external stimuli? Um, and and I, I don't know. So we are likely to learn more about how stress and, and environmental exposures affect our neurobiological function. Um, I think that we don't, we don't know it all today, um, but there is more coming in that direction. And in the meantime, as clinicians, um, as teachers, as researchers, I think we need to keep our ear to the ground because there are yet uh, newer presentations of eating pathologies that are coming our way. And again, I think uh, ARFID is, is, from my perspective, where a lot of the future presentations really lie.
and thankfully we're still learning and I really grateful uh, to have been here and share some of these thoughts with you today. Thank you. Thank you very much for that great talk. We have time for a couple of questions. Anybody? Dr. Nett. Um, so for those who are really very underweight, you said that like that malnutrition and starvation affects how their brain functions. And um, do you feed them against their will so they get to a certain point? Is that, I just, I guess I've, I know there's been some real changes in how you treat anorexia nervosa specifically, and I'm going to assume some of these other things yeah. as well. If I'm ever invited back, we can have a whole conversation about that. It's one of my, did you notice how I weave that one in? <laughs> We'd love to have you back. And at lunchtime on Auditorium D, the resident Dr. O'Keefe and Dr. Lamar are going to be presenting a case of a child who presented severely underweight. And so maybe we can continue some of that. The deterioration of neurobiology, neurobiological function, is so significant, so significant. Um, so it's important. Uh, to think about the fact that the way to conceptualize the treatment of any underweight state is to change the, the nutritional sort of difficulty because that potentiates change for the brain. As a matter of fact, we've moved towards calling this brain rescue, which is really helpful for kids, for young people, right? I mean, nobody wants to throw away their brain, even if you have anorexia. You can throw away your heart but you won't, it's unlikely that you're going to sign up to throw away your brain. And so that's the notion of we're trying to re-approach from weight gain, refeeding, which really translates to them into fattening up, mm -hmm. right? That's, that's really the translation in their heads to brain rescue. We, we got to reach in to rescue your brain because without brain function, change is impossible. Dr. House, last question. Um, so I'm a pediatric hospitalist, and we struggle constantly with lack of inpatient resources for people with eating disorders and specialized facilities. Um, and in our region, there's really only one place that we can regularly refer to. My understanding from my colleagues nationally is that this is also a national problem. And so I just wonder, you know, with your sort of postulates that we're going to see an increase in types and variety of eating disorders over time, if you've seen a move to increase those resources or <laughs> how we might advocate to do that or if you've seen success stories there because we're really strapped and we end up with kids in the hospital for a long period of time without the right services. Absolutely. Um, no, unfortunately, the supply and demand imbalance persists, <laughs> even, even with the status quo. Um, and the challenge is that, as we know it, effective treatment. So there are a couple of layers here, right? There, there is a layer of a majority of patients that should be treated on an outpatient basis. So you should be stabilizing your patients and plugging them into, you know, you, you've done the, the, the timely recognition. Now you've got to do the timely and effective intervention and plug them into care because the bulk of these patients, roughly about two-thirds, will actually respond to outpatient care. And that's where FPT or an FPT informed or FPT-like modalities can be so helpful, right? You're teaching the teachers and empowering the right people to actually affect the change, if you will. But then there is the next layer. And those people go on to have, you know, a, a seven to 10 year course of illness, generally speaking. And on top of that, there is the roughly 10% that we don't know how to treat that go on to be severe and enduring. Those are the people that need to be plugged in earlier, right? I mean, those, those, are, the, those are the hard murmurs that should go to the operating room and sort of bypass the, you know, two or three years of, you know, we're, we're if, if we knew how to differentiate between those groups, we will be plugging these higher groups into a different level, a different path, a different journey of care. And that's where the discrepancy really comes in because that care is difficult. It takes expertise. It's multidisciplinary. Today, maybe tomorrow it would be about deep brain stimulation and we all, you know, we take care of them all that way if we recognize them. But we don't know that today. So, so it's expensive, time-consuming treatment and then hence, that translates into an imbalance in the supply and demand. So the problem that you're facing is the problem that is faced nationally. And I'll tell you, I'll add to that, that in my own experience, is the medical side of the expertise. There is more mental health care availability, more nutritional care availability, right? more psychiatric availability, even though child and adolescent psychiatrists are in short supply in this country. But it's the medical folks 
that's the Achilles heel of the field from an outpatient perspective at this point. Who's, who's going to mind the shot from a vital sign, lab, nutritional improvement, uh, weight, weight improvement, height improvement when necessary perspective? And the only group that has that expertise is primary care providers in the pediatric young adult arena, pediatricians and family practitioners. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.